Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 725th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your local food revolution. Welcome to part one of a very special episode for us today on the Urban Farm Podcast, as we have a member of the first generation of what we now call the permaculture movement. She is someone who shares her experiences and teaches about restoring planetary health. We're talking to Rosemary Morrow about the Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture. Rosemary is a permaculture teacher, author, speaker, and agricultural scientist. She has spent decades traveling the world, designing healthy living systems, and applying permaculture as a practice to restore our planetary health. She has worked locally across Australia as well as globally with farmers and villagers in Africa, Central and Southeast Asia, people of war-torn nations such as Vietnam and Afghanistan, and communities experiencing the serious effects of climate change like the Solomon Islands. Her latest book, Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture, brings together 40 years of evidence-based approaches to guide us towards the regeneration of our Earth. Endorsed by the United Nations as a tool for their decade on ecosystem restoration, this book shares how communities, cities, workplaces, and governments can collectively and positively shape our futures. Welcome to the show today, Ro. Are you ready to rock permaculture? I'm ready. I'm right there with you, Greg. Awesome. Yep. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, well, I guess that as a child, I like to roll in the dirt. And I think that's always a good sign. If you hit it happy sitting on warm sand in the grass, it's another good sign. Or going yeah. to sleep in a park under a tree. I think it's all good signs of being attached to the earth. So I'd always felt I was attached to the earth. And when I went to university, it was actually a call between medicine and agriculture because oh. there was no ecology. And with, uh, ecology was sort of where I would have liked to be. But other than that, it was agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I opted for agriculture. And I think it's given me a very good basis. It's like learning your times tables up to 12 solidly and well. 
So mm -hmm. I learned the science, soil science and biochemistry and botany and geology, all individually in little boxes where you wouldn't associate them with anything else. But I learned them thoroughly and they've been useful. As I said, it's been like having your tables where you don't have to think. Someone talks to you about soil chemistry and you're right there. We talk about botany and plants and you're right there. So it's been a good foundation, but not a good tool to use because it was reductive. It was just single science. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and how did you put and them all then, together? Well, I mean, I went looking. So I ended up doing development work in Lesotho. And while I was there, that's a small country like Switzerland in the middle of South Africa. Mm -hmm. Small kingdom. It was King Mishweshwe was king when I was there. And uh, I realized that people were selling food they should be eating. Tiny amounts of potatoes and onions. Oh, yeah. Sitting on the footpath. And you thought, this is not surplus to need. This is need. And they're selling it to get energy. A couple of things I learned from them. Whenever people are hungry and starving, you have to supply them with energy first. And secondly, people need to be providing their own food in all forms before they go to the market. Mm -hmm. And those things have been sort of guiding principles in hard situations ever since. <clears throat> Came back to Australia, I had to be here for a while. I was looking for something else. I wanted to do something that cared for natural systems and something that was horticultural. So I did horticulture and that was good. I learned about roses and conifers and all sorts of things and how many types of hose there are. And then I did environmental studies and I liked that too. And I think the Australian gift to the world is the restoration of bushland. Oh, yes. Yeah, the way we do it. They call it rewilding now, but I think we've been doing it for 20 years. Anyway, and then suddenly someone said, you need to do permaculture. And I said, no, I don't. I don't. It's surely it's just like sharpening razor blades under glass triangles or something. Right. There's a whole lot of woo-woo stuff going on at that stage. And then I took myself to hand and thought, if you are going to dismiss things through prejudice, go and find out. So I did the course and sat there and thought, ah, this puts it all together. It's got the ecology, the botany, the source. It's got everything I need. And you, it's got a design system. You did the permaculture design course. Mm, I did the permaculture design course. And I sat there and I was familiar with quite a bit of it. But what it had was that design aspect and since then, I've gone on to work with that a lot so that people use that design tool of analysis mm -hmm. and they're putting it together as an instrument of restoration, those two things. So I sat there and I thought, yes, I can do something with this. And then a year later, I was invited to go to Vietnam in Doi Moi, which is the opening up after the war. And I've just gone on from there, wow. <clears throat> doing courses at home and courses away every year sometimes five or six courses. So you did your permaculture design course in the early 70s? 1986. I was 1986. In the 70s, I was in Lesotho in Africa. Wow. And then I came back and did the, the uh, horticulture for two years and some other stuff. And I was afraid I was getting stuck on the academics. So at the same time, I started my own business in design. I was very interested in learning about it, but Permaculture design is very different because it's based on restoration. 
It, it's yes. not that I like the aesthetics and I want my garden to look good. It's not about that. It's much more that it is restoring soils and water and biodiversity all the time. I could see how it could work in almost every environment. I knew it could work, but I didn't know if people would want it. And that took me to Vietnam and then Cambodia when the Khmer Rouge was still very active. And then Albania after they pushed down, what's his name, Hodgka, the great dictator, and pushed him off his statues. Then Uganda in the, and Malawi in the middle of the AIDS pandemic that killed wow. so many people. There were, now in Malawi, no, Zambia, Malawi, there were funerals about every half hour. Wow. And you'd hear the people going through the streets and you'd say, what's that? And they'd say, it's another funeral. And so what you had then was the growth of orphanages. And I realised if you want to look at a country's distress and poverty, you look at the number of orphanages. So yeah. East Timor, after the Indonesians, reduced the country to ground zero before they left their occupation. If you look at Vietnam and Cambodia, if you look at Uganda, you look at the number of orphanages. I bet you Syria today would have orphanages and I don't know what will happen about Ukraine, but wherever yeah. you get big disasters, you get the orphanages. So often I was working within an orphanage as a start, but doing permaculture right from the beginning. <clears throat> How did you find the permaculture design course? A friend. Janice said to me, you need to do this. And I said, oh, I don't think so. And she <laughs> said, I think so. I was a little bit worried. There was stuff about a Bermuda Triangle floating around. And everyone said you can sharpen a razor blade if you put it in a glass triangle or something. Oh, interesting. You know, we have to be in permaculture, be able to separate the really brilliant, miraculous, evidence-based stuff from quite a lot of opinions and, and really information which is far too opinionated because that's dangerous for people's lives if you're teaching that. Yeah. You can't teach people things. That, you can't say to them, we'll help you get your food supplies started if you can't do it. Or you should try this. I did it at home once. I think you have to be really based deeply in an ethical approach to information. Yeah. Mm. Wow. And how, after your permaculture design course and almost 40 years of studying permaculture and writing about it, how do you define permaculture? Oh, look, I just, I've never been able to define it. It's terrible to define. <laughs> Everyone's got a different definition. And when you say it to someone, you can hear your voice losing energy because it's all abstractions. Mm. It's a system or a toolbox of something that enable landscapes and societies to regenerate or something. The whole thing is for someone wanting to know and who thinks it's lettuces, that's no answer. So I finally think I've nailed it just when I'm stopping work now and retiring. And I really think it is restorative, it is practices to restore earth and society to a degree to health. And That's you know, nice. then people can ask, yeah. well, how do growing lettuces do this? And then you can talk about soils and soil health and microorganisms and humus and anywhere you want to go. But simply it's a system and an approach to restoring yeah. health of environments, cultivated environments and natural environments and society. 
I think that's simple enough and then let people ask. Amen to that. You've written multiple books about permaculture and your first one 30 years ago was the Earth User's Guide to Permaculture. Tell us about that book. Well, that came out of the course where I felt there was a better way of structuring the information. So I read all of Morrison, Mollison, and all of the American writers at that time. I read all David Holmgren. I noted them all, and I went through and I put things together in a different order. And it was that reordering, which today I've still used in a way that leads to an ecological literacy that enables people to restore landscapes and society. Because if you can't make the right analysis, you'll end up with the wrong solution. So if you just think your soils are all toxic and they're actually not, you're going to end up with the wrong solution. If you analyse your water wrongly, you'll end up with the wrong way of storing it. So the whole thing was about getting all the literacy together first all those things about soil and water and diversity and forest and putting us all in the same boat and then we can go on and paddle and develop design techniques because people are increasingly environmentally and to some extent socially literate while they grow in their own personal need for mm-hmm. fulfillment and satisfaction but there's less and less understanding of the environment and I think that's been heightened by computers and phones and time inside and heat and cold and air conditioning and I think people really are not well they're just not literate so I put all the bring them up to scratch on literacy mm-hmm. and then start the design work so that to me that's where I started and I've actually stayed there I might have juggled the topics around a bit may have had more information from research or knowledge from seeing different systems but basically it seems to me a good foundation for understanding and doing yeah we want to look at a landscape you and I and we want to look at those hills and we want to both say well, what can we do with those bare hills? We'll put trees on the top. We'll put water as high as we can. We'll start at the top and get it right. I hope that we'd be doing that as permaculturalists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we'd understand the starting point and what, you know, re, re, uh, recharge and discharge areas and where to put water catchment on the land. Otherwise, I don't think we're permaculturalists for a series of different people with different ideas on how to do things. And I think it's very valuable to have the permaculture way of looking at things. Yeah, amen to that. And how has permaculture changed in the last 40 years? I think it's moved, for some places, not all places, it's moved mainstream. Mm -hmm. Now you find governments such as the Cameroon or Malawi or some countries are actually adopting it, would they call it that or not. Our local government area has fundamentally adopted permaculture faced with global warming. Um, I think it has penetrated in bits and pieces. So whether it's something like water tanks or insulation that's gone into codes for building and reconstruction. I think people have regenerative agriculture is an offspin of permaculture. So is community gardens and schools. It's given lots and lots of babies 
There's been the famous Food Forest books of Dave Jackie. So what's mm -hmm. that? It's spun off whole nodes from the whole basic permaculture syllabus into needed specialist areas. And I'm in favour of this. You know, the design course itself can only give people a smorgasbord, a taste of what's there and a sense of what they could do. But it's in no way an implementation or panacea for all situations. But it's very powerful. Very, yeah. very powerful. Well, yeah. I see a PDC is it really it's an introduction to permaculture. It's a 72 hour introduction to permaculture. And then we have to go out and implement it to really learn it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's the way I look at it, too, is this has just started off your life, which will now will colonize your head as permaculture. There's no escape you've got with you the rest of your days. And it's like to carry. So, you know, I work closely with refugees. If they're transferred or go to another camp or whatever, they can take it in their heads. It's easy to carry. And then yeah. they can apply it there. And their lives can be better whether they're under a bridge in Paris or in a camp somewhere else. So that can actually use it at any time. So it's a wonderful thing from that point of view. <clears throat> and permaculture, I really like to call it a journey rather than a destination. And a permaculture design course is a 72 hour introduction. And then we get to go out and start learning about it. And there are logical things to do in permaculture. And before we started recording, you shared with me about a project that they wanted to do water storage in the ground, put in wetlands, do that kind of stuff. And you said, no, 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 let's put in tanks. And my first thought when you said that was, that's kind of odd, but then you explained and it made a lot more sense. Can you tell us that story and how you came to that conclusion? Well, actually they did. So I was in Portugal and we were looking at a landscape which they say the Sahara is reaching into the Iberian Peninsula. And it certainly looks like it. When you fly over it, it looks like Sahara. And the fine dust in the air from the Sahara reaches all the southern Mediterranean areas. It's just mm. there as the first signs, it looks to me like the first signs of bushfire. That orangey, slight look in the air, which is not huge. It's not going to stop you breathing, but it's just there. So you've got this increasing desertification of these two countries that I could see, and certainly I imagine Greece and Italy as well. And we were talking about water, and we, we were doing a PDC. And we went through yeoman's water harvesting and how to catch water on the land, and they were identifying it for their farm. And then we talked about the size of the catchment you would need to meet your needs in a dry season. So if your dry season is seven or eight months, mm -hmm. this must be starting to happen in California and other states of America, Western Australia as well. And how much water do you have to save to go on farming the way you are now? You have to save seven to 10 times the amount you would need for evaporation. So if I look at what I save here for my drier season, about 40,000 litres, to save that in those climates with the evaporation and desiccation, it would be 400,000 litres on a little urban block. That's for me. So on farms, you'd have these massive catchments, which at the end of the dry season contain enough water for you to farm as you farm. So the thing is, as the drier areas get drier and drier, 
and the period between rains gets longer, you have to save more water, continue doing what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do that, then that's going to be enormously costly. So although we have our principles of water management, and they're brilliant, first into the soil, but it won't hold it unless you've got enough organic matter. And clays, but they're very difficult to work with. You won't get enough organic matter unless you can get the water in. So there's a whole series of things. After that, you're going to try to save it in vegetation and you're going to try to save it in things like dams and ponds on the land. Really latitudinal areas such as California, Western Australia, Mediterranean. What are they, 30 to 40 latitudes? Get drier. Yep, yep. Then what do we do about water? I'm not sure that Yeomans is going to stand up to it. In the interim, we will turn our dams and ponds into wetland systems with windbreaks and filters and keep it clean and make the ponds deeper and dams deeper with smaller surface area for evaporation and try to reduce evaporation. It's either that or it's cover all the irrigation channels or cover all the dams and ponds. I believe you can put a little bit of kerosene, which you call diesel, I think, over the water. Oh, wow. Polluting water much and rain and ducks and things that get covered in it. So, you know, there's a huge questions to be asked. And the other thing is in permaculture design that I insist on is show me where you're going to put water back into the soil into the yes. aquifer, into the groundwater. How are you doing that? Where is it part of your design? That's another storage mechanism we have to get to because most of us have inherited a mainly Northern European thing of get it off the land fast. Right. Straighten the rivers and get it off. And we're saying, no, hold it on and get it into those deeper aquifers as well. So, um, you know, water is actually the subject of permaculture, Greg. It's the biggest one and the only one. If we got water right, we'd get the vegetation right. We'd understand where we live. We'd get the trees on the hills. We'd get the recharge, discharge. We would get the carbon sequestration. You know, it is all about water. Someone said to me once, really, the whole subject of permaculture is soils. And I said, no, it's not. It's water. You still can't save water in your soils unless you've got it, no matter what you add to them. So this is the crux of what we have to be good at and know what we're seeing for the future. Well, and the story that you told me before we started recording, they concluded in that permaculture design course that they were going to put tanks in the ground to hold the water to mitigate the, the evaporation, right? Yeah, so to some extent, so they're still going to make some dams, which they know will go dry. So mm-hmm. they'll be ephemeral. They will stretch out the water use to get a crop. So you might get your almonds or your figs or your olives harvested in that period, but mm-hmm. you wouldn't have any left over to do extra stuff. And they were thinking if they went to the tops of the hills and they put in big, deep tanks which are going to be expensive, but from then on, they've got gravity to feed. They could then revegetate whole areas. So once they've got the vegetation, then, of course, everything is more moist. It's moist from evapotranspiration and everything else. So you've got a much more moist environment Mm -hmm. under which to cultivate. And they're thinking to get their trees in the ground. What they're going to have to do is get these big tanks 
and get them in when it's raining and then use that water for the survival of the species to create enough critical mass of vegetation to keep it damp and keep it going and protected. Otherwise, the deserts are moving in. When, as it gets hotter and drier, I've noticed the winds. Ten years ago in Arizona, we'd get winds for a couple of months in the spring. And with whatever's going on on the planet, now we get seven months of winds and that covers the summertime. So that's hot, dry winds and it's drying out trees. It's drying out the landscape. Yeah, that's right. And the winds are more powerful, which is why we need the trees, Mm -hmm. because they're the only things that act to both filter the dust and give us a little bit of calm environment. Here's a a paradox for you. Now, we had the seven years of drought. We had Uh 12 million hectares burnt out. We lost 3 billion species. That's spiders and slaters and soil stuff and carbon, and now we've got this flood of weeds through natural areas, and now we're having floods. And the floods are changing the courses of rivers, which I thought happened in geological time, is happening in my lifetime. And they're saying it's going to cost more than the fires. So then for water, how do we manage this thing? These places that were bone dry were just dust like clay pans, are now absolutely these enormous destructive things with billions and billions of litres of water pouring through and destroying everything. What is it we need to be able to do? That stretches the limit of a permaculturist, but it shows how we can't presume that getting drier is going to be the only thing. Maybe we're going into another seven-year drought after these floods, but the fact is the floods have taken out the crops and destroyed banks and right. levees and houses and villages of people have died. You know, they've been enormous. And the rain has come from the monsoon up near Darwin, which would be like down in Miami, and it's moved uh-huh. across latitudes to a temperate climate. Oh, it's really wild to think about. Yeah. Very wild to think about, yeah. <clears throat> and so, you, you know, water is it. Yeah, Sorry. water. Yeah. yeah. Well, we do a water harvesting summit every summer. And, you know, mm-hmm. each year we get more and more people just to come and learn how to use gray water and rainwater and mm. flood water and like that. Yeah. I mean, flood water would mean we'd use some of the principles they're using in Holland for the rising seas where we're going to take out basins, even in cities. And they can be recreational areas when it's dry. And in the big floods and storm things, they can use them for it capturing surplus water. Now look, in Hanoi, they did that for years and years and years. They dug out a fish pond because of the flooding of the Red River, Pink River, Hong, Cool. Anyway, and they dug out this soil. They built their houses up out of flood depth. Then when it rains heavily, they fill up their fish ponds and they are highly productive. They grow snails and frogs and fish and use the water for a million reasons. So they adapted to the seasonal flooding and people thought it was just nice to have fish ponds. But actually, when you look at the levee banks of Hanoi, it's much more about managing local floods. So the fish pond outside the pergola 
which looks so attractive is actually something they have derived over the years and is good practice. And we need to learn from it. It's an asset that does multiple things. Yeah, exactly. So we could dig big basins beside rivers and extend the water in the landscape if we were willing to plant bins of trees and, and start at least buffering global warming to some extent. So these disasters have, have good good options as well. Mm. Right. Uh, and uh, so you've been writing about this for over 30 years. And one of my favorite books is The Earth User's Guide to Permaculture Teacher's Notes, because mm. I teach a lot. How has your book impacted teachers and how can it be used to move the permaculture conversation forward? Greg, I realized that permaculture was such a huge thing, the 30 or 40 topics. It's big. It you is. know, once you look at a house and then a garden and then a forest and then a food forest and then a something and then plants and seed saving and ethical money and responsible right living, you just go through it all. It's huge. How can someone start? So I wrote that book in response to how people could put together a course and teach where they had sufficient knowledge. But before that, I decided to learn how people learned because mm. I didn't want a group of people sitting in front of me and 90% would go away with a mere smattering and not an understanding of the deeper and more profound areas of permaculture. So I started to think very, very hard about teaching because there's so much time and effort goes into a course and those 30 or 40 people are very precious and you yes. want them to be good graduates. In a way, we should almost be like people who do surgery on brains. We should be so careful and good about our students that they're all excellent. So I wrote that book in an effort to help beginning teachers understand how to set up some learning objectives. And I've gone further along that road and written a teacher's teaching the permaculture teacher's manual. And I based that's free online. And I based that on something called alternatives to violence, which is takes us back to the second ethnic of permaculture, which is care of people. Mm -hmm. So if I have you as a silent audience, I think I'm being arrogant by not understanding you have a contribution. Anytime we talk about water or soil or weather, people do have a contribution. Yes. And many of them are knowledgeable, interesting. So how can we involve our students, give them what they need, which is a top up, but also involve them. I found this program called Alternatives to Violence, <clears throat> which means you see and hear your students. I call it learner-centered. They don't design the course, that would take too long but they do have input at all levels and share their knowledge, which is wonderful. So now I've been teaching that course around the world and it's taken off massively in Europe. Wow. Where, I mean, Alfredo was teaching, I think he te was teaching the course once a month to every country in Europe and has mm -hmm. just finished the course for refugee teachers. So these will be refugee teachers of refugees teaching permaculture. So I've continued to pursue my interest in how people learn. Mm -hmm. You know, if you say to a primary school teacher, how does a student learn to read? They don't really know. 
They know the mechanics, but they don't know how they yeah. put it together. And my understanding of learning is when people are engaged, something's happening there that we call learning. There's the first perception. Then you have to get that secondary processing for it to be learned. And that's what I'm interested in. So right at the beginning of my courses, students have to draw their place. They have to show where the winds are. They have to do, 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 using all the senses and different ways and different topics. It's more work than giving a lecture, but it's far more rewarding. And I'm now saying, let's look at competencies. At the end of this lesson, what will you be able to do? Take out to the world <clears throat> and share. And will you be good enough at it to offer something valuable? Because I think it's so much work and so few people, they have to be good. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Are you hopeful for our future? If I look at the evidence, no. <laughs> right. Scientific evidence, no. If I look at history, I think yes, because although humans are very busy prophesying and predicting what the future will be, very, very often it comes from somewhere else. Who foresaw COVID and the impact it would have on food distribution? Right. No one really. I mean, people like myself were saying, look out, because I'd seen pandemics. I'd lived through polio and I'd lived through AIDS in, in Africa and I'd seen what the impact. But, and I knew what Ebola would do. I mean, that would be like the Black Death. That would be. So I knew that pandemics were going to emerge. After all, we're only habitat, Greg. That's all we are. We're just habitat. Something <laughs> lives on us all the time. And we're, we're very nice habitat with a variety of different niches. But I do think that change comes from everywhere. I think incremental changes now have a much, much bigger impact than waiting till things have got worse. I think there's hope with some places and people. And we don't all, as I said, we don't always see it. I mean, this is the question you address to your students, I think, when we do, I call them now global challenges. Uh -huh the same as the planetary boundaries put out by the UN, pretty much identical. So when we look at those that we're approaching end of, then it looks extremely grim. But when we also think about nature's response to what we do, when we look at our ability to turn, who would have thought you'd get a vaccine for COVID within about a year or whenever they got it? Amazing, amazing. When the world puts its mind to getting solutions and things done, it can be done. Yeah. Um, so although there's a lot of strife that I would never ignore and bad signs, I think also there's a lot happening behind the scenes. As we talk, there are about 6,000 permaculture courses taking place across the world. Right now? Yeah, right now. Wow. Mm. Mm. That is that and is cool. The answer isn't only permaculture. It's when we work with permaculture. Yeah. So we've found that if we look at the sustainable development goals of the UN, we can put permaculture projects up there because they meet so many of the goals. We can build the evidence for permaculture within the UN by listing our projects. It's hard to get in there because it's a messy bureaucratic site, but you can do it and you can get your project up there. And we've got tens of thousands of permaculture examples everywhere. Oh, yeah. 
mm, that could be listed, everything from films and articles to backyards and balconies and, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Well, thank you. I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Mm. Oh, I failed quite a bit. Yeah. Good. Failures, then we're doing something failures. good. Yeah, failures, failures, what happens a bit. The first one was in refugee camps in Hong Kong when the Vietnamese were fleeing the new government at the end mm -hmm. of the war when America left and Australia left. And people went to Hong Kong. And the Hong Kong, whoever was organised, put down 30 centimetres of concrete and huge big iron electrified fences and 2,000 people in about an acre or something of land. Oh, my gosh. And they were living on bed boards each. And I said, would you like a garden? And they said, yes, please. So I gathered all the information and I met the people. Some of the refugees were allowed into a meeting room and we had a talk and discussed whether we could have a community garden. They said they'd love a community garden. So I got tyres and all the things that they could grow in containers and we got some soil and we went in there and we put in a garden and I had things like garlic and ginger and tropical stuff, turmeric stuff they'd like. And then I had peas and beans and corn, all the tropical. And we had it there and we set up a lovely Mandela circular garden on a bit of land and we had tyres for growing potatoes that I wouldn't do now, but turned out it was good. And I went back two weeks later and it had gone. Disappeared. Wow. We had children running around with tyres, jumping on them and running on them. And I thought, gosh, the tyres are what the children need to play with, sitting in them and rolling playing with them, putting them on top of each other because they had no play equipment. And I realised that outside the huts and on the bed boards, people had got the equivalent of a little plastic yoghurt container and there was the seed, there was the garlic growing out of it or there was the bean. They'd got a plastic bag, they'd taken the soil away from the communal and they'd made a little round garden and put it on their door and planted their beans. And people had simply taken all the parts home. And some of them they'd eaten because the food was so dreadful and the whole garden had dispersed. When I look back at that, I realised that if I suggested a community garden, they would all say, yes, that would be lovely, we want it. But the unspoken need was for people to cultivate a few seeds and roots and things themselves mm -hmm. to have something to care for and nourish and not be part of the community garden because they were eating in community and living in community to such a degree. A plant in a pot was a highly individual and precious thing. Now, I've never been quite in that situation again, except refugee camps where people are in tents and containers. And there we go and collect all the plastic containers and people hang them on their walls. Reams and reams of bottles and jars and two litre things, oh, wow. all green and they have their gardens. So I let them do it. I just didn't even understand how that desperate crowded living would lead to a need to your own garden. And actually now I just teach people, give them materials and let them do what they wanted and say, all you have to do is share the seed when it grows. Just share the seed, share some of it. Eat most of the corn, but keep some. Eat most of the beans, keep some, something like that. Yeah. So that was a learning. 
Another one was just an insight when I realized that what permaculture does is restoration. <clears throat> if you take a lawn and dig it up and you replace it with the garden, you've restored a living system where there was one once. Yes. If you plant a forest, you've restored a living system. Whatever we do, we're doing restoration. If we stop using chemicals, we're restoring huge amounts of biological and insect life to the world just by letting it happen. I think what we do is create the conditions under which that can happen. We can't make it happen. We can create the conditions for life to thrive and diversify. So I think understanding it as restoration, I'm hoping people will understand it as restoration as well. Rather than I'm destroying my, my lawn, I'm restoring a system here in which life can thrive and yeah. live. I've had insights like that about the way forward and how knowledge and language could be used. I think understanding Mediterranean climates need to act now or it will be too late, and also that small, deep water is what's required for them, not the big dams. And we have to look to the Middle East for what they did. And we should change the design of our houses. So I think what we need is, say, here's an envelope. Is our houses now are like this, where the water runs into gut. Here's the roof. Yep. And the water runs into the gutters on the side and into tanks. What we need is to cut a hole in the middle, have all the roofs going in, and store our water in a deep courtyard, as the Moors and the Spaniards did for centuries, deep inside, cool and deep and no evaporation, and we could pump it out. But it means that all the roof lines slope in to an open courtyard. Right. And it's cool, and it's gardens, and our gutters are on the inside, and the outside isn't collecting water, but it's going deeply into deep long-term water storages. I think we need to change the design of our houses. I'm not going to take that to our local government, they'd cry. <laughs> right. That would be too much, but that's yeah. what I can see could happen in time in dry areas, that yeah. we'd work out all these different ways of storing water different, catching and storing differently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. And what do you consider your biggest success? I think the successes I've been prepared to let go. One of them was developing a course which is non-obligatory for permaculture teachers and trainers to learn quickly and learn well. So mm -hmm. they have to actually write their ethics as a permaculture teacher and tell the class at the beginning and be prepared to be accountable and kept to those ethics. So I think that's been important and it's spreading very, very fast. The other one is permaculture for refugees, which I thought might die, but it's being picked up. It's now got global following. And perhaps you could help, Greg, who are the permaculturists working with refugees in United States? I need to contact them. We want to build up a chapter to know what you're doing to learn from you. Who are the people working actively with the new migrants and refugees in the States? We know East Africa, we know Europe, we know the Middle East, we know Southeast Asia, we have no mm -hmm. idea in America. And we need the contacts to say, what are you doing? What can we learn? Because it's now a global movement and it's thriving and increasing 
right around the world. I said, if it doesn't have legs, if it doesn't grow itself, I can't invest all my time and energy in making something happen for which there's no need. So that, I think, is a very good thing. All right, listeners out there, you heard her request. If you know who is working in North America, who is working with refugees, send an email to me, greg at urbanfarm.org, and I'll make sure that Roe gets that information. Oh, thank you, Greg. That would be terrific. I've tried a few people, but the answers don't come back, and they must be there. And refugees love it. I mean, whether they're on edges of borders or caps or something, yeah, good. And the other one, I think, is with Liz Bastian, we started the Blue Mountains Permaculture Institute that recognises merit. And although it's dropped a bit recently because I've been working hard, we're looking for people who have done interesting and innovative things in the world, and we give them what's called a merit diploma, recognition, the past work. We're not interested in setting up training courses where you do assignments to get a diploma, and that's to recognise people in refugee camps and war-torn zones who don't have English who are working away and doing interesting things because permaculture is dominated by English speakers. And what drives you? What's your big why in the world? Why do you do what you do? Look, I think I learned once about a landscape architect called Capability Jones in America. He could always see the capacity or need for something. And I had a real feeling of rapport with him. I can see something that's needed, not in terms of the kitchen sink needs cleaning, but much more something that would be useful and valuable living in the permaculture world. So there was that. But I'm also deeply influenced by this book by Aldo Leopold. A Sand County Almanac. And you know what he'd be saying? Permaculture should be taught in every school and society. That final address he gave is it needs to be universally taught to everyone. And that's influenced me in terms of teaching and freely teaching as much Mm -hmm. as I can. And the other one has been, I haven't got his actual book. I think he's an American too, E.O. Wilson. Oh, yes. Or was he English? He wrote a book called Biodiversity. And years ago, I realised that all his responses to biodiversity were permaculture. (laughs) Third one I don't have with me is Viktor Frankl. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. And he was a psychiatrist who somehow lived through two or three extermination camps in Poland or Germany. And at the end, he wrote the book. And he was observing people under this enormous stress and said, what makes life worth living? And he decided it was a small act of integrity that no one sees. So it was not taking the cigarette from the dying man. It was not taking the boots when they're offered. It was that small private act of integrity. And I've always been interested in moral philosophy. So I'm very interested in what is involved to live a life, an ethical life. I don't think I do it very well, but it is one of the reasons that I get interested in these questions. What does an ethical life depend on? demand of us. And because I work with so many people who are poor and disadvantaged, I know I belong to the 1%. 
I've had choices of universities and education, scholarships, going places. And I think that comes with a massive obligation to give back. Yes. So the last six years I've been in the free economy. I haven't charged for anything. If people send me checks, it goes to refugees or new teachers. But I have the gift economy. I've been yeah. in that. And that's good because I don't owe my allegiance to anyone except the people I'm working with. No one else. You don't have to pay the piper. Right. You don't. Wow. Not, the piper's not calling the tune. But that is because I'm an elite. I actually bought a house when I could. I've got a refrigerator and a garden. I could walk to town. So my choices are not to use any more non-renewable resources and be basically in the gift economy with that sense of obligation of giving back, which might be knowledge, Greg. It doesn't have to be giving things all the time. It might be that sense of responsibility. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I think what I've been talking about is numerous things, actually, not just one. So it's a little bit of Leopold, and then you add E.O. Wilson, and then you add Manson, and then I'm a Quaker, so we've got the principles of peace and simplicity and integrity behind us anyway. Yeah. So it all is... It's very hard to live it because I'm constantly tempted but by all sorts of things. And it has to be balanced because otherwise you become fanatical. If someone hands me a chicken and I wouldn't buy and eat chicken and I'm a visitor and they've killed their chicken, I'll eat some chicken. Say thank you very much, but then manage to feed it to small children who might be crowded behind me on the mat. But there's some point at which you become fanatical with your trying to be someone or something that you're not livable with either mm -hmm. oh gosh this has gotten to deep philosophical stuff oh, there you go mm -hmm. and what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners engage engage in restoration engage in engage in the environment massively get up from this Take this podcast outside and go and sit and see if you've got an insect zoo. See how many things you would you notice in a shaft of life. Have a look at what's eating what. Have a look and be delighted because it's all miraculous and then get your back behind it. You'll just find it's just so motivating and marvellous. We actually live in a natural miracle. and we're not Yes, we do. We do. I'm, and we're not living with it enough. Yeah. And did you say we're not taking it? Well, we're not appreciating it as profoundly. I mean, it's a cliche talk about sunsets, but there are no two the same. Right. And if you just take time to look at the clouds, there are no two clouds the same. And a cloud only lasts 11 minutes, so you haven't got long to look at it. It'll <laughs> change. Just tune in to out there. Who just was tune it? in. Was it? Emerson or someone who said in going outside, he's really inside. Mm. Yeah, I don't know who we're said really it, but I know that. inside at all when we're outside, aren't we? Mm. Yeah. And read some of the wonderful American writing, and I'm talking about style here. There are wonderful American writers about the environment, and that should get you into protecting and signing petitions. And it's worth saving this planet. It is. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ro. It's been a pleasure, Greg. I felt it's a real conversation of colleagues, and I don't oh, thank you. that because you're with new teachers a lot, and they're often exactly so concerned about content, they're not really thinking about the shifting world and changes. Yeah, it's yeah. lovely. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that we haven't talked about yet that I want to talk about in wrapping up is you have a new book. The yeah. reason we got you here today was the new book, Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture. Tell me about the book. Okay. Well, I wrote this in a response to living and working in refugee camps for five years, and I realized that permaculture was essentially colonial. It was addressed to English-speaking in societies. Mm -hmm. whether it's North America or Europe or somewhere. And although there were many Africans and some South Americans practicing, it wasn't accessible to them and it didn't speak to them. As long as you always deal with a pig or a chicken and not with a llama or a buffalo, you're not talking to anyone else, really. And I decided to write a book that was more global and which enabled permaculture to be practiced in a 40-story building, as they're doing in Hong Kong, or in a refugee camp, the sort I talked about with large numbers of people living in tents in degraded conditions, and we would break the rules. You would take that grey water and you'd turn it into a grey water cleaning thing and you'd grow beans along the edge of it. You'd grow them in cans and plastic bottles. I took what they do in Bangladesh and the Marsh Arabs for learning to grow food where the ocean is encroaching. And I realized marine permaculture didn't even exist. And so I looked oh, at Oh, wow. That. Yeah. Do you teach marine permaculture? Do you teach the zones going out from a port and port cities? How many port cities have you got in America? How many cities? Hundreds. How many rivers run to the sea and carry their waste? So I look at a student's design now and say, show me what the impact will be on the ocean. And that's if I'm 2,000 wow. miles inland, show yeah. me the effect on the ocean. So there's all these issues and people needed to understand patterns in nature better because that's the secret of your literacy. Mm -hmm. Looking at the landscape, understanding what the degree of degradation is and how it needs, what you need to do and is needed to change it. So I decided to write the book. I decided to take on groundwater and pumping water out and aquifers and wetlands, ocean wetlands and hanging swamps and places that just were not covered before and do it in greater depth. I decided to look at how we could work with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And we need to work with others. We can't anymore say we'll provide the alternative and you look at us. We're wonderful. We actually have to work with others and work with them, infiltrate, work with them, become partners, because there's a lot of commitment there and good stuff. I think selecting traditional and cultural, where they'll take us into a different future, as I mentioned, the housing. For people who are ignored, about 3 billion people in the world living in deltas, High-rise right. buildings, 70% of people will be in cities. Cities have got to ramp up food growing the way they can't even imagine now. Who was dealing with that? Could permaculture deal with it? If not, let's just concentrate on the rich, but I wouldn't be happy about that. And if it can, then let's get out materials that teachers can work with. So that was my thinking. 
working on the edge and, and moving the economy to understand the donut economy, zero growth, recycling, going for zero growth here in our local government. They're going to have a total cyclic economy. They've wow. started yeah, so things are happening. It's just tuning into them. And cities and urban cities and local government are the places. This is where we can really be transformative. Wow. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. That is Earth Restorer's Guide to Permaculture. Where can we buy it at in the United oh, States? Look, it's quite simple. Meliodora.com. So that's M-E-L-L. I-O-D-O-R-A, Mealy Odora, must be sweet, honey smelling, I think it means in Greek, um, .com. They're the best ones. And look, I rewrote all of the book and Vandana Shiva from India wrote the foreword because I oh. wanted a woman from the global south. Yep. It's a good doorstop. Greg, it's 512 pages and weighs one and a half kilograms, I think. Oh, my gosh. It's a big book. And Rob's drawings are sensational, and it lends itself to translation because you can lift all the captions somehow, if you know yep. the technology, and can go over them. So I want it to be translatable and carefully selected vocabulary for those reasons as well. I didn't dumb it down, but just made sure I didn't use Australian idioms or terms that weren't universal yeah so it was two years hard work it wasn't that much of a joy but it's deeply satisfying oh i'll bet i'll bet well thank you thank you thank you how can our listeners get a hold of you oh well they can go to meliadora.com okay your publisher okay. very um, good yeah they can go to bloom mountains permaculture institute .org.au. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash row. That's R-O-W-E. <laughs> oh, thank you, Greg. Yeah, you. really. That's it. Yeah, nice. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free 
to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.